Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on tour.com. My guest today is writer Sarah Benbro, who has won the British Fantasy Award for Best Short Story and Best Novella. She's also been shortlisted for the Shirley Jackson Award. She's the writer of over a dozen novels. She's written young adult novels as Sarah Silverwood, horror, science fiction, fairy tale retellings, and has even written Torchwood Diaries. Her latest novel is the YA crime thriller Thirteen Minutes. Sarah, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Hello, hello. You're finally here. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Yeah, we've, we've gone around the houses a bit with various things, haven't we? But I'm here now. Yes, you are. Now, am I correct in calling 13 Minutes a YA crime thriller? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I know it's coming out from Gallant, so people expect it to have some sort of supernatural in it, but it doesn't. It's it's a it's a crime thriller. Yeah. All right, we'll come back to talk about that a little more. Now, I know you've written for many, many different forms, for TV, film, many sorts of fiction, including TV tie-ins. And as exciting as it must be, of course, to see a novel or a book you've written in a bookstore, what's it like watching something you've written on TV, given that, you know, that's the one product, as it were, that can change a lot along the way between your writing it and between, you know, when it's out there. Is it exciting? Is it just nerve-wracking? Um, it was when I watched The New Tricks, it was just, it was nerve-wracking. I was kind of behind a cushion. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously already seen it, but I, it was a massive learning curve in, in how much could change, even down to, you know, a bit of bad casting could mean they cut a whole character out, which changes the structure and, you know, the arcs. And um, But yeah, and, and so many people watch TV, you know, yeah. like, if you, can, you know, you kind of think book sales, you're really happy if you sell several thousand, but... You know, New Tricks was like seven million people watched it or something, eight million people. And that's quite a, a weird and just hearing the words said aloud, you know, is quite strange. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. The writing process must have been hugely different, of course. Oh, massively different, yeah. I mean so many people are involved in T V writing. Right up to the last minute, you know, there'll be more changes and more changes and, and because you have so many people with a say in it, you know, you might have three different producers or four different producers. You know, and, and each of them will have a different take on what you've written. And, yeah, so it becomes a much more collaborative. And then, obviously, the director has his own input in how it's put together, etc., and the actors. So, yeah, it's, it is an entirely different thing. And it's kind of hugely terrifying and frustrating and also hugely exciting and rewarding. Yeah. And I guess it's, it's so frustrating that that's why they pay you so much money to do it. Right. Well, it also sounds like there must be a lot of managing of egos while you're at it. I think that's probably more uh, the producer and director's jobs than the writers. I mean, the, the writers tend to, in TV, especially on those series where people are writing one episode or two episodes, they're, you know, the writer's ego is the lowest thing in the room. Right. <laughs> so it's, you know, I think it's more about um, trying to retain the essence of the original story you started out with that's the biggest problem for the writer because it changes so much between draft one and draft nine or ten yeah that it's, it's trying to think oh is this still the story that i wanted to tell and if you can come away with that then i think you know that's a success now what's this about you having been told when you were in your early 20s that you were never going to become a writer <laughs> i How... think i was 23 and i sent a, i wrote a short story that probably wasn't very good and i sent it off to this little you know, this is way back before the internet and everything, and you could get these little chat books and, you know, little anthologies and things. And I can't even remember who published them, but I think they considered themselves quite a literary little magazine. 
But I sent this story in because I'd looked up on, um, you know, some website about where you could send short stories. Or some, yeah, it was about 1995. So it must have had the internet, but it wasn't as... as Not like this, you know, yeah. Today. Um, so then I got a letter back that told me my story was terrible and that I should give up because I was never going to be a writer. However, 24 books later, here I am. <laughs> but how long did it take you to get back to writing after that? Was it a real blow or was it just, I mean, obviously it was not enough to keep you away. No, and I think, you know, writers, writers write, that's what they do. And I was, you know, I was leading a very busy life. So it wasn't, it wasn't as if I, at that point, was thinking, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. It was more that I'd written this short story and thought, well, I might as well send it off somewhere. Um, and then I suppose I didn't really write anything else for a few years. Then I wrote a couple of short stories that got published and then went straight into writing novels. So, you know, but no, it didn't really. I mean, it was obviously it did upset me, but I've got a bit of an ego myself. So I just thought, oh, well one person's opinion <laughs> and um, and that magazine folded very quickly so I feel the revenge was mine yes the that's karma right <laughs> yeah exactly well as you were saying all these books you're pretty prolific and you've talked about how you aim for a set number of words a day a week but what I wanted to know was how many of those daily words are the right ones in the end the, the ones that you end up keeping and is your planning process really so detailed that you know the first draft is essentially in very good shape yeah, I mean, I am a planner. I am a big planner. Um, and, you know, yeah, normally my first drafts are pretty, pretty tidy. You know, I don't I don't often have massive structural changes to make or anything because it is quite, you know, I do plan in quite a lot of detail. Not, I won't plan the whole book out, but I do plan. I always have my ending I'm working towards. And then I'll plan kind of 10,000 word chunks. And I might have little key points that I think, okay, this has to go in, that has to go in, this has to go in. And then there's loads of notebooks with brainstorms and, you know, orders of events. So by the time I actually write, and then I'll often kind of pre-write. So I'll sort of open something like Scrivener and just splurge words on the page and then write that up neatly. So often things have kind of been written three times by the time they make it into the first draft. Um but yeah, I'm hoping to write less, fewer books, fewer books from now on. One book a year would be nice. How come? I've got a new deal which pays me way more money. So ah, <laughs> if that lasts, obviously, you know, it's a terrible thing to say. But, you know, when you work for you, I mean, I, the thing is, I probably still will write more than one book a year, but the pressure is off. Right. To, you know, when you're living in London on your own, it's an expensive city. Yeah. And, you know, so it was, you know, two books a year made sense with other little bits and pieces but I'd, I'd rather write one book a year and um, you know maybe a couple of films that kind of thing Do you think it'll change the way you go about things now that you don't have to write as much? I think they'll definitely be better hopefully better better writing um, because you've got more time to concentrate on it I mean quite often especially when I you know I, with Mayhem and Murder they were quite hard books to write because of the historical research so right. they were slower to write so I would literally finish it skim through it hand it in start the next one and then get the notes back you know because the timings were so tight that I didn't have time to sit on the book for a month look at how I might change it you know which I'm hoping I will have more time to do now um, so yeah we'll see we'll see now, you taught teenagers for quite some years, is that right? Oh, six years. 
That's quite a, it's a tough gig, you know, teaching teenagers. Anything to do with teenagers. Teenagers are tough. We were tough. Um, but it, did it help you when, it, you know, you're creating 13, sorry, creating teen characters for 13 minutes and for your young adult fiction as well? I think probably. I mean, there was, I don't, you know, part of me thinks no, but it, it obviously did. I mean, I was, I, I think when I wrote um, The Nowhere Chronicles, I used quite a lot of my kids. I was teaching names, and one of them, Mitesh Sabjani, when I'd finished the first book, I said to him, you read. Do you want to read it and tell me what you think? Because kids are really honest as well, you know, right. brutally honest. You know, they're not going to finish a book just because you've asked them to read it. And he really liked it, so I was like, okay, that's good. And, he, you know, he was like, oh, you've got this bit right with kids. But more with um, Death House and 13 Minutes, I think. I think partly the teaching, but, you know... The, I'm no I'm not a teenager. I can only I can only sort of look through a window into that world. So there were things that I would ask my friend's teenage son, you know, like what you know, what do kids call this these days? And but then there's also editors will change things. Like I couldn't reference MDMA. I couldn't call it MDMA in thirteen minutes. Right. I wondered about I had, that. Yeah, I had to call it the slang name. Which actually makes no sense because kids are kids and they'll look it up. Yeah, and they'll know it is. But I think it was a technicality, and we can't have this, and you know. Um, but I do think I also. I mean, I did ten years at boarding school, so my memories of being a teenager are quite strong. You know, there was a lot of things happened in those years. So I think I kind of, I kind of think the only difference between adults and teenagers is they feel things more strongly and see things more, more black and white. However, however hardened they are to the world, they have a much more black and white moral core because they haven't stepped into the grey areas as much you know they haven't had to make excuses for themselves as much as adults do so I just try and approach it like that I just try and think you know you know try and think like like I did as a teenager because with the best one in the world I can't possibly understand what it is to be a teenager these days which is why I, I don't put slang in yeah it changes so fast you'll be outdated before the book comes out now, 13 Minutes is your newest novel, and I feel like you may be a writer who does indeed have elevator pitches for her books. Did you have one? Does 13 Minutes have one? Um, it did, and I can't remember what it was. <laughs> um, it was probably something, it probably wasn't even that great. It was probably something along the lines of a girl resuscitated after 13 minutes needs to find out who tried to kill her, or something like that. You know, there's the idea that you've been dead for, because also the book changed from the original outline. It was going to be much more, um, much more hints at supernatural. Like, you know, she she in the original pitch, she was an unpopular girl who nearly dies. Well, does die for this amount of time is resuscitated, and then it it was about um, what came back with her, and that she she was telling people that she could speak to the dead and suddenly she was really popular and there was lots of Ouija board stuff and then it got into bullying and that kind of thing and so there would that was going to be a much more of a is there supernatural or isn't there and then you know obviously I changed it all when I started to write it so the pitch kind of went out the window <laughs> so for all your planning these major changes obviously do happen still oh yeah I mean I think that the biggest changes that, and all writers will say the biggest changes come between when your publisher says, oh, give us a one-pager for your next book, you give them this vague one-page thing. And the final book is very rarely similar to that outline. Um, I think that the one that I've got coming out next year from HarperCollins, that was pretty close to the outline, but the content's changed. You know, the, the actual, the, the ending's the same, the beginning's the same, but the bits in the middle are all different. 
because you know you're, you it's really you're just trying to sell a book at that point you're not you know you haven't plotted it out or thought it through but once I've got my plot it kind of tends to stay pretty much the same now was there any one place that 13 minutes came from I mean you've, you've just mentioned what the original story was perhaps going to be but and it changed to this but did you have an initial premise for it when you first started thinking about writing it well it changed because first of all it was a tv pitch and really? that was an ad yeah i didn't yeah. know that was, yeah i know i sold it as a tv pitch a few years ago and it was a policewoman who was dragged out of this river frozen river is resuscitated and can't remember the 48 hours beforehand and then it's a you know and it, it's how the, the story unfolds she's been looking for this killer and it's all this stuff that unfolds um, but we never got that off the ground. So I just liked the core concept of it. So then pitched it, once the option was over, pitched it to glance as this supernatural team sort of thriller. And then when I came to start writing it, um, I thought, well, I better research teenage girls and get a vibe for what, you know, how they are and everything at the moment. And, um, and I found a lot of stuff about, um, you know, violence within teenage girls' friendships. And there was a documentary on a girl in America called Skylar Niece, who was murdered by her two best friends. Um, and so I thought, well, this actually the, the dynamics of teenagers could be more interesting than anything else. So, um, I mean, it's not the story of Skylar Niece, obviously. You know, I've changed it, and you know, there's various people who could be the baddie, etc. But um, that was sort of the launch pad. That that was what stopped it being supernatural. Was reading about these sort of teenage girls you know, the obsessions with each other and the friendships gone bad and all that sort of thing. The stuff that you basically can't make up. Yeah. Because it's so yeah. awful, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you get a chance, look at that. Uh, I think it's on YouTube. It's a Skylar Nice. Just look up Skylar Nice. I mean, you know, she, her body wasn't found for months, but these girls were tweeting about it. You know, they, you know, they, they, they said they went on three, you know, that they stabbed her on, they counted one, two, three, and then they both stabbed her. And one of them tweeted, we really did go on three. I mean, it's stuff that only teenage girls would do. But then this, this girl's body was, it wasn't found because of snow. And these two girls had been, you know, comforting her parents and all that kind of stuff. And you yeah. think, wow, you know, perfectly normal teenagers that suddenly this thing happens. And I think teenagers have a, they have no sense of mortality and they have no sense of the gravity of their actions sometimes. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Which makes a huge difference, of course, to then their actions. Yeah, and and then to you know, there's kind of, you know, it's a tragedy all round when, you know, this poor girl is dead, and then you've got these two teenage girls, one of whom I think was, wasn't as into doing it as the other, and then you know, locked up for life, and you think, what a waste of three lives, you know. Now, writing crime, writing horror, is there a particular sort of horror that you personally prefer, for example, to read? Um, do you, you know, like the gore and the violence sort? Do you like the body horror maybe? Or, you know, the, so, the slow-building dread? You've written all sorts, of course. But you yeah. must have a personal preference. Well, I'm not, I don't read a lot of horror. And I, I certainly don't write a lot of horror anymore. You know, I think may may Mayhem and Murder, someone said, oh, Mayhem is a horror novel. And, and it is kind of, but it, to me, it's more a Victorian crime novel with a supernatural twist. Well, to be fair, 13 Minutes scared me quite often. Yeah, but it's... I mean, it's, you it's, call it a, I'll call it a thriller, but, you yeah. know, it had elements. It's, when I think horror, I think... You know, I mean, a lot of crime novels are scary. But horror, I think horror has to be the main drive. You know, there has to be something... I think of horror, I think... Stephen King kind of right 
I think more much more supernatural drive to it than you know a crime novel can be. I mean, Silence of the Lambs could be considered a horror novel, but it's also a crime not you know it's a serial killer yeah. novel. So, um, but when I, you know I like I most of the horror that I read will often actually be closer to science fiction. Like I just read The Fireman by Joe Hill. How is that? Oh, it's brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. But you know, it, it kind of had echoes of The Stand, obviously its own flavor. It had, but it wasn't, um, it's kind of a, you know, I, it's sort of a sci-fi novel to a certain extent in that it's post-apocalyptic rather than horror. Right. Um, where, but Adam Neville's stuff, I think is, you know, uh, where no one gets out alive, I thought was great. And um, Nick Cutter's, and actually that was quite body horror, the truth. Yeah. But his characterization was so good in it that I just kind of got carried along with it. I, I guess I prefer a dread. I prefer dread to gore if I'm reading horror. And I certainly would prefer to write dread to gore, I think. Uh, speaking of dread, I really enjoyed your fairy tale retellings. Um, oh, poison and beauty and charm. And it's hard to do that sort of thing without having, I guess, an active gender commentary, isn't it? Uh, a, contempor- a contemporary active gender commentary. A commentary. Yeah, the hardest thing. I, it was the thing that really struck me when, because, it, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea to do them. My editor, we'd both been watching Once Upon a Time, the first series, and we yeah. both really loved it. And she said, how do you feel about doing some fairy tale retellings for us? So I was like, well, I'll think about it. And I couldn't find an angle in. And I didn't want to do a modern one because I thought I'd, it would come out far too much like uh, Once Upon a Time, right. just simply I'd be too, too influenced. So I thought, well, I want to do it in a fantasy sort of world setting. But I couldn't get my angle. And then I just thought about the prince who falls in love with Snow White. And I was like, what kind of man falls in love with a dead woman in a box? Right. You know, he knows nothing about her apart from how, he, how she looks. And Does then, he course, need to know anything about her? She's a dead woman in a box. Is that not enough? Exactly. <laughs> So from there, you know, I started to sort of work the stories out, but it became very clear that there was going to be a feminist agenda in the books because you can't look at fairy tales and not see that sort of thing. And to the point of actually we had to tone it down in places in the edit because Gillian was like, Gillian at glance was like, yeah, you know, it's good to make these points, but at the same time, these are fun books, you know, and they're sort of sexy and, you know, romantic at their heart. So we did have to tone a little bit of the of my gender foot stamping down. All these books later, which one do you think you've learnt the most from? Is there any that you would sort of go back and do again differently or any where you feel like, you know, a good idea almost went to waste, almost because you weren't at the right point to really get it out the way you wanted to? Oh, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I'd probably rewrite all of the first six horror novels. All of them? (laughs) Well, that publisher never really edited you know, leisure or leisure, as they call it in America. You kind of handed it in, and then they changed got to gotten. And then it went out. So I never really learned about, you know, better ways to structure my sentences in the way that when you get a proper editor and you start getting your copy edits in and stuff, and you think, oh, this reads better, or that structure is better. Um, Yeah, but I guess, you know, they were also, they were a learning curve. So, I mean, I've got the rights back to those, so they're not out in the world at the moment, and I certainly wouldn't put them out without editing them. Um, uh, what have I learned? Uh, I think writing Mayhem taught me a lot because I was doing a very different structure in it and I was using real life events, real life 
characters, real life news reports. So I had to sort of work within a framework that was already in history right. to tell my story. So that was quite interesting. And it, it did change the way, it, it certainly led into the structure of 13 minutes with different ways, you know, the text messages, the news reports, the, you know, diary entries, using it as a very kind of constructed narrative, as it were. Um, I, you know, I still I love the the Nowhere Chronicles that that came out under a different name, so no one ever bought them. <laughs> um, but you know, I'd probably tidy them. I think I'd you know I'd always tidy all of them, but um, I don't know which I. I think you learn from all of them. It's hard to say. But well, a couple of those legends, I did just knock them out, so I probably didn't learn much from those. Well, now that you have you know less to write, you can always oh. go back and do them again. Yeah, or just write other books. <laughs> or just write other books. I think it's more likely. It's always, I mean, you always think, why go back and fix things? I mean, that was what you did at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't it doesn't define you forever. It just defines you perhaps for a very short time at that point. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to read how, you know, when you read writers' stuff and they change and, you know, the way they, they do things changes. It's quite interesting to watch people's journeys. You know, I mean, I was quite lucky in that, you know, I sold my first novel straight away but in other in other respects it would have been better if I had it and maybe I'd have to write a couple more before I sold one you know so yeah. that I'd, I'd yeah. learnt my craft a bit better but that's you know first world problems really yeah I do wonder sometimes what it's like for a writer to live with the characters that she's made up for these intense periods of time. I mean, they're in your head. It's not like you can get away from them. But then they leave and then a whole next lot come around and, you know, hang out. Does it get confusing ever, keeping them all lined up, making them, you know, behave exactly the way you want, especially for someone like you who is sometimes writing or often writing more than just one uh, story in a different form? I think the hardest time was... Um, when I was writing the Dogface Gods trilogy and the Nowhere Chronicles trilogy, and I was writing one of one, then one of the other, and then one of one, and then one of... So I'd sort of leave these characters in the middle of something, go off and write another set of characters, but never actually finish the story, you know, because I had to go... There were it was different books in the series. So um, that got a bit complicated. Um, but no, I think... I mean, I, I don't understand how people like sort of George Martin keep track of everyone. Because I found it hard enough in a trilogy. I'd be like, what colour eyes does he have? I don't know. Yeah. What is he wearing? Yeah. Is he still alive? You know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, the character's getting in your head. But it is interesting because you do kind of live with them and love them. But the minute it's done, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, you're gone now. Next. <laughs> you know, it becomes that sort of, you know, you have people email you and go, I love this character in this book, which is lovely. But sometimes I can't even remember who they're talking about. Fair enough. You have written a lot of novels. But it is terrible. You kind of go, who? Who? Oh, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. So you move about really fluidly within genres, outside of genres. Um, is there anyone that comes to you easier or that you perhaps feel more at ease with, more comfortable with? Or at this point, does it not matter anymore? Um, uh, I'm not sure, really. I like writing crimes because I like the puzzles. You know, I like to put the puzzles in place, puzzle pieces in place, and you know, it's it's fun to do that kind of plotting. I found it quite hard when I wrote the Death House, because it wasn't a mystery story, so that things didn't have to happen in a particular order, which actually threw me a bit because I was like, well, this is a piece about character, and I'm not quite sure how to write that, you know. But the fairy tales had actually helped because having to write the romance, which I'd never written really before. 
and having to get used to that in in the fairy tales it did help me sort of write this this teen love story much better i think um so i do like a story that has a, a set structure that needs you know the plot needs to happen in certain order i'm currently writing a well, while I'm editing this next book, but I owed, um, there's a small press in America called Earthling who do limited edition books. And I've owed them a horror story for years now, which is now turning into a novel rather than a novella. Um, but that's the first horror thing I've written in a long time. And it's actually quite, trying to think of scary things is harder now because I'm out of practice. Right. Or maybe I expect more of myself than I did in the early days. Um, but so, yeah, I think probably crime is, the most frustrating, but also the one I enjoy the most. Thrillers, crime thrillers, that kind of thing. Now, you're working on this horror novel, as you just mentioned. What other many, many, many things are you working on now? Have you, you, I think you've got some film stuff in the mix as well? Well, film stuff all seems to have slowed down. But I've got, um, I've got some meetings in L.A. about people who want to option the book that comes out next year, Behind Her Eyes. Um, and there's talk there about me getting to write the script on that, which would be great. Um, I want to write the script of this um, book for Earthling. Uh, it's called They Say a Girl Died Here Once. So I'm kind of using the, the, the novella slash short novel as a treatment almost for the film. Uh, I have got to come up with my next book idea, which is kind of in place, but I need to formulate it better. Um, get it down into those two pages that will no doubt change. Um, oh, and I've got a couple of TV pitches that are out there in development, so we're going to wait and see what happens with those. So it's all kind of lots of little things, nothing nothing too major going on at the moment. What's the next novel that's going out? Uh, after 13 Minutes, it's a novel called Behind Her Eyes, which we've sold to nearly 20 territories now. Which that's is fantastic. Good. We had an auction in America, which was amazing. Um, and it's coming out from Harper Fiction, um, I think, February... 2017. What can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I'm really terrible at no. this thing, but it's kind of you just sold it to 20 territories, but you can't tell me a little bit about it. Exactly, the book was already written then. Um, it's about a woman who, a single mom who has a new boss arrives at work. Uh, she works at a psychiatrist's office, um, and it turns out to be a man she randomly snogged in a bar. Uh, the previous weekend and then she becomes friends with his wife and it's really about these two women but she starts to suspect that there's something very dodgy going on in their marriage um, and it has got a slight supernatural edge to it but it's mainly I guess a domestic thriller in the vein of it's sold to a lot of the same people who have bought Girl on a Train right. Gone Girl that kind of thing so it's, it's in that vein you know it's in that vein but there is some weird stuff about dreams in it Weird stuff is always good. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of weird. Although my mum always says, oh, if you could leave the supernatural stuff out, you'd probably do better. <laughs> do you, does your family read your, your books? My mum does. My mum does. Uh, my sister read the fairy tales, but she doesn't really sort of do horror and crime and stuff. So, she, you know, uh, my dad doesn't at all. But, yeah, my mum will. My mum my mom reads them. And often, obviously, as mums do, then passes comment on what worked and what didn't work. <laughs> Has it ever been helpful? Uh, well, she never reads them before they're out. Ah, uh, so too late then. Yeah, and no, I mean, it's my mum, so, you know, I don't really take take my writing advice from my mum, bless her. She's, but she's a big crime reader, so, you know, she loves, you know, her house is full of Mark Billingham and John Connolly books. 
Is that the kind of stuff you grew up reading? Uh, I grew up reading, I read everything, you know, uh, but far more uh, horror, supernatural, Herbert King, um, John Wyndham, uh, that kind of stuff, you know, a bit of weird. I did grow up reading a lot of weird. I didn't, you know, and then, and then I think I went through a whole Sidney Sheldon, Wilbur Smith right. phase. Who didn't? I did all those books when I was about 13. I think, I think, you know, I think kids, we didn't have YA books then. Yeah. I mean, there were children's books, but there weren't YA books. So we just kind of progressed to reading adult fiction really early. I think my mum gave me the stand when I was about 12. You know. And so. that, that jump is quite extreme now that you mention it. I mean, I'm thinking back as well. And I'm pretty certain I read a lot of stuff younger than I should have, but it's because there wasn't anything in between. Yeah, and I, you know, this younger than I should have really, I'm a bit like, meh. You know, I mean, I know that there can be some rude stuff and some violent yeah. stuff, in books, yeah. but actually it's, it's it's words on a page. It's not, you're not seeing something shocking. Sure. You know, you can close a book and, you know, it's not. You're like just it. imagining everything way worse than yeah, anyone exactly. on the screen could. Yeah. Yeah. And I think books, you know, even, I, I, you know, I, I'm really anti this people that want to put age brackets on books. You know, I'm like, no, a book is a book. And if someone's old enough to, to work the language, then they have a sophistication in their thinking that they can probably manage whatever's in the book. And you know think, so. think so? Yeah, I'm really, you know, I don't think that reading all that adult fiction did anybody I know any harm. I think they're probably better read. They probably read more. I mean, I think the problem we have with kids is they will read YA books, but then they do not go on to read adult books. Right, this is true. They've been given these beautiful covers. They've been given all this... You know, and, and actually, most most YA books are read by women in their thirties. Right. So there's very few books that really take off with actual teenagers. You know, right. there's very few like that Harry Potter thing that really, you know, every kid I taught was reading those books, and maybe Lemony Snicket and things, but they tend to be more children's books. YA books are, are read mainly by adults, so it's a kind of false economy as well, yeah. false market. So you're not one to put, say, trigger warnings and things because there was a big talk about that, wasn't there? I am so anti-trigger warnings because also I'm not, I'm not anti-trigger warnings for things that that are, you know, people who actually have proper post-traumatic stress right? and get a visual, you know, if you are suddenly presented with a visual image, like a friend of mine was, um, she was, uh, she's a writer and she had been in central New York um, when 9-11 happened to the point of she had lung illness because of it, you know, she was inhaling all the dust. And she went to watch Cloverfield and she could not remember anything after the first sort of five minutes or whatever, once that thing started beating up New York, uh, because she had complete, went into complete shock and was carried screaming from the theater. Now to me that, you know, that film maybe should have had a trigger warning for people who had because right. they use so many images from that 9-11 time that if you weren't expecting it, that could really trigger someone who'd been standing next to a building that fell down with 5,000 people in it. You know, that, that's a proper trigger warning. But these days it seems like, oh, that might upset me a bit. So it needs a trigger warning. I think, no, no, no. Books are meant to make you think and books are meant to upset you at times. And the point of them is to make you, you know, look at... Yeah, I, I, I think the world is... You know, students who say, "Oh, can we take that statue down because it's trigger warning for me?" Or, you know, I don't want to read this book because, you know, I think apparently it has a rape in it, or apparently it has a, 
you know, a murder in it or apparently, and you think, well, actually, just, you know, as long as you know that's coming and your teachers are good and they will tell you that, yeah, I don't think, you know, I think, I think trigger warnings put people off experiencing things they should experience if they're going to survive in the world because there is no safe space. You know, people say, oh, it's a safe space. No, there is no safe space. The world is not a safe space. Wherever you are in it, there is no safe space. So as you can tell, I get really angry about this whole trigger warning malarkey. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. I don't want to leave you angry, but I also also want to let you get on with your day today. And I know you've taken the time out on holiday to do this. So I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been fun.